Dr. Conrad, are you on the line? I am. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm excited to welcome the program uh, Dr. Conrad Murray, uh, formerly Michael Jackson's doctor. About He's going to talk about his book today, This Is It, The Secret Lives of Dr. Conrad Murray and Michael Jackson. So, Dr. Conrad, thanks for stopping by today. Tell me specifically enough why you decided to write the book. Well, I wrote the book for a number of reasons. There were a number of adversities that I encountered, a very, very raw ordeal. And there are a number of things that my children, my mom, and other family members that knew. I wanted to make sure that it's memorialized so that they will always be able to refer to it as part of their history. At the same time, you know, there's a very real story that entangles my life with Michael Jackson. A lot has been said about him throughout his life, and I also wanted to include that as part of my memoir. And and I think that that's, that's definitely important. So tell us specifically how you became a doctor, because I know that's part of the whole memoir, right? Telling your story. Yeah, yeah. Well, how I became a doctor? Well, you know, suddenly I was born uh, in, from very humble beginnings. I never wore shoes until I was seven years old. And, um, you know, very, uh, but I then came to America several years after doing well academically, avoiding substance abuse and any of those type of things, and I focused my on, on my um, institutional uh, training. I became a doctor first at Meharry um, Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, in the Mayo Clinic of, of Rochester, Minnesota. Went on to Melinda University Medical Center where they did the baby free baboon heart transplant and um, became an internist. Went on to the University of Arizona thereafter, became a cardiologist, and finally, at the University of California, San Diego, where I did my subspecialty in interventional cardiology. But during the course of my training, I met a lot of people. I served a lot of um, privilege and underprivileged. I stayed on the Native American Indian reservations, and I did a number of things in medicine, which I am very thankful for, that the country gave me that enrichment. And how, cha- how much of a change, a culture shock was it to come to the United States and to become a doctor and just the way you grew up, you said, compared to being in the U.S.? Oh, well, you know, it was, there are two different things. I, re- I do remember uh, when I first came to America that um, I was given an examination. I remember, I clearly remember that. And I thought I'd made a 100% cold on the exam, but I missed one question. And the first question was, what determines social class in the United States? I had read this, this, the question so quickly that when I got to social class, I had stopped. And I just checked education. And I got it wrong. <laughs> because I came, from, I came from a British country, and um, education determined our social class. If we worked hard, we studied, we can become almost anything. In the United States, it was just the opposite. Money determined social class. I still cannot believe I, I got that question wrong. It still haunts me up to today. I think we need to change it. That's terrible. You're right, because they, they, they look at social class compared to education, and in other countries, education is the most valuable resource, isn't it, Dr. Conrad? I, I think education is very important for all of us. It's just good for us to be aware of what's happening in our environment. Whether or not we are educated and learn a, a specific career and we can translate that into a livelihood, it is just good to have the knowledge because we can help our children, we can help our neighbors and friends, and we can help the world in general. Absolutely, it's 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 something that um, 
it, it, it transforms society. It gives you that motivation because to, to, to achieve an education, you have to work hard. And uh, that I mean, hard work will lead to other things, right? I mean, it's crucial. If you went to your bank, for example, today and you sat down to discuss a loan and then the number of fiscal ter- terms that starts throwing out you know, at you, wouldn't you want to understand what you're being told? Wouldn't you want to be able to respond appropriately so that you know you're making the right decision? It's, I mean, education, there's two things about education in my, from my perspective. There's a theoretical aspect and there's a practical aspect. Though I have had both experiences, I do not know which one supersedes the other. So I don't individuals who have not been to a university but have a great skill should always put themselves to be less than that of those who have had a degree to show that they're educated. Absolutely. Okay, so you went on, you said, as a medical doctor, and uh, what was your pra- – were you practicing general practice, or what, what was your specialty? No, I'm a highly skilled um, specialist. I, um, I train physicians to repair the heart, and rather than um, having to cut the chest open, that's my specialization, I would use catheter-based therapy to go in and remove the blockages in the artery. Should it be in the heart? Should it be in the neck, the carotid arteries, the legs? I repair the abdominal either. Wherever there is a blood flow supply in the body, I can restore it. Okay. And how many years till you started practicing on your own? You mean you were with a hospital for how many years till you decided to be more, uh, I guess, independent in ways? Well, I think I did um, postgraduate training for 16 years, and then uh, I went into private practice. After being an associate interventional cardiologist and an associate director for training fellows in San Diego with both um, Scripps and Sharp Medical Center under the auspices of Maurice McBinder, I went into private practice on my own in 1999. Now, I did join a group in Nevada, and when I got there after 90 days, I resigned because basically I got into a system where the group that I worked with was like a factory, was like a mill. It was a matter of test, 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 test for patients, no time spent with the patients. I couldn't do it. So I decided to resign, and I was going, to back, I was going back to California. But on my way to California, all of the patients that I had treated in Nevada decided to say, oh, Dr. Murray, you know, you're the best doctor we ever had. No doctor ever spent the time to the care, explained did this for us. And it was just a matter of just this cry. It fell straight in my heart like a teardrop. And I decided, right. you know what, I'm going to stay here. So I took about $5,000, went and rented the building, an office space, and I started the practice. I stayed in Nevada, not for just, just the love of Nevada, but I stayed there because the patients cried out. I wanted to be there for yeah. them. And so you stayed in Nevada. And have you worked with any other celebrity clients before that I know that you can disclose before working with Michael Jackson? Well, I, can, I, I wouldn't really disclose the names of anybody, but I've worked with the, high, the most highly privileged to the most underprivileged. And I show okay. no difference. It doesn't not matter who you are, I will give you the ultimate care. Actually, in the book... If you look at the dissident book, I have actually I did mention the name of one person in the book who um, I happened to have made a major decision in treating, and that was um, Mother Teresa. And you guys can read oh that story. It's in the book. Wow, that is that is amazing. I I'd like to touch upon that. So, when you first met her, was that was that just an unbelievable presence to meet? 
when you treated her? Well, when I when I made her decisions and decided that she needed certain type of care and, and procedures performed, I had no clue who the woman was. I had no idea. And when the request was made, I was swamped. I was in charge of an entire coronary care unit that night with patients in-house and patients coming through the ER. And I had an ER doctor who I thought was fairly weak. Everybody that came to the hospital, he felt they should be admitted. <clears throat> and, and so the the the, true, the, um, the the amount of patients that was coming through the door for myself and my interns, my medical students, all of whom I was supervising, and being in charge of all of the crisis and the heroics, any code of anybody crashed during the night was almost impossible. But I took the time because here was somebody calling for inter, from an international source and they needed help. And Mother Teresa made the call because she needed an answer to make a very, very significant decision, but she needed it from a, a, a religious institution. I had no idea who she was until I was exhaustedly caught on my couch the next night when I was um, frying some things on the, on the fire. I fell asleep. Yeah. My entire apartment became filled with smoke, and I was awakened with the alarm, opened the windows, put the smoke to go out, and then I placed the television on, settled for a cold cut sandwich thereafter, and then the picture came on, this, on, on CNN, and they were talking about Mother Teresa and what was happening to her and what was done. And I said, hmm, maybe she's somebody important. <laughs> I had no idea. I, had, I was exhausted. I didn't have a computer of my own, so I wasn't going to Google the woman. But I said, maybe tomorrow I'll check with my attendant and know if he knows who she might be and what's the story. Well, this, the book will tell you. When I did explain to my attending physician, his eyes grew large. His breath um, slowed. His breathing rate slowed because he wanted to be a part of the decision. But the decision I made for Mother Teresa was quite clear and isolated of the attending physician, and uh, maybe that's the way God wanted it. She was very wow. She was very thankful. She, she blessed me. But you can read the story in its entirety. Oh, we definitely we we want to read the book. You're already getting our interest in that story alone. Uh, with my faith, uh, Doctor Conrad, I uh, am a huge uh, uh, I, I wouldn't say fan, but honoring uh, Mother Teresa and the things that she's done, and that that's for sure. If you talk about two unbelievable icons in different areas in the Catholic Church, Mother Teresa, and then the Michael Jackson. So meeting Michael Jackson for the first time, how did that start and how did you become his doctor? I was asked to see um, a patient who, well, by, by a patient, a call came into my office that a reference was made for, to, for Dr. Murray as the physician of choice to attend to a celebrity children who was sick. Uh, in the environment, I, it was in the middle of the day. My office was bub with was, you know, too many patients. I couldn't do anything except that I said, find another doctor. If not, I can see you at the end of the day. They called back. The choice was they would wait. I said fine. At the end of the day, I agreed to go to the residence. I was driving there. I had no idea who I was going to see. Four blocks before I got to the gate, I got another call. Doctor Murray. The person whom you're going to see today is um, Mr. Michael Jackson. Would you mind signing a non-disclosure agreement? 
I said, okay, that's fine. When I got to the house, I signed. I then I was let in through the door. Thereafter, I met Mr. Jackson. Meaning, so you never knew that this was going to be such a long, long experience working with him, right? When you first met him, you just didn't know what was going to happen, right? You just you thought you were coming to treat him, no, and I'm, you didn't know what was next. I was going to treat the children. I was going to have a follow-up, give, give an evaluation and an assessment. After I took care of the three children that evening, just before I left, he asked if I would take a look at him. And I could tell that, you know, he was also um, suffering from the same illness. Uh, it was just a little pandemic inside of his household with viral, upper respiratory and low-grade fevers, dehydration, lack of appetite. So I took care of, I, I listened to him also and he danced a lot. Michael danced six hours nonstop daily in his theater. That's his exercise. And if he started at the weight of 130 pounds, you can weigh him at 125 after those six hours. He lose about six, anywhere from six to seven pounds. In addition to being sick with the low-grade temperature, he was actually losing more insensible fluid as than he should, so he needed hydration. And I hydrated him with um with a banana bag, which is normal feeling and multivitamins. He needed two bags. And I had to put an IV in him in order to do that. And I do remote. He was excited after I did that. He said he had never had an IV that was placed in his arm that was so smooth. He did not even realize it was in. And um, I guess that may have triggered him to wanting to have more of my medical attention given to him. And finally, you know, he exposed his, his himself. Like, for example, he... It's in the book, and you'll read that Michael Jackson had not been cared for. Michael Jackson, his feet were just horrible. He never ah. showed his feet to anyone, anyone before. He wore socks. He had calluses. He danced in pain. He had such deep, created fungus into his flesh that ah. his, um, the 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 feet was cracked and 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 cornified and dried and. It was amazing. If you pull that his socks off, you can just imagine like the, the feet of a corpse that's laid out in the desert and it's dried. You know, I mean, it just was yeah. horrible. I noticed, I brought. I finally asked him to have a podiatrist come to the house. He wouldn't allow it. Then finally he agreed. Maybe once it's not a woman. And I got a guy to come and take a look at his feet, and he did some work. And from there, for the very first time, Michael was able to dance with short toenails, no calluses, no pain. And I, and wow. I think it was just maybe a nat- and some naturalness in Michael. He just started trusting me. And over the years, you know, he started to, uh, we became very close friends. He would call back and forth. He, he wouldn't let, I wouldn't even have a chance to even make an appointment to go by and see him. He wanted to call and see, well, what I was doing after work, he didn't matter how late it was, you know, come by. I think I gave him a chance to just, you know, be an adult, talk. You know, cage in a home where the walls become your boundaries, it's kind of difficult for us to let with you. can't just walk out the street like we can. He can't even walk to his yard as he would like to. Somebody has a camera in a tree, somebody's across the road. So that this can find. I may have given him a lot of release in the sense that he could have a chance to relax and talk, lounging there in his pajamas, 
you know, sprawling across the couch, looking through magazines. Um, just uh, a naturalness developed in our relationship. But I also became very sympathetic to Michael in the very, at the very early stages. I was not at all so engrossed the fact that he was Michael Jackson and because I met him, great, I met you, but I I treated him like I neutrally would look at all patients, whether you were king or a pauper, I would treat you with the same respect. Yes. But I never judged people. And um, over the years, it became exceedingly close that there was a trust and a bond that developed. And I have confessed things to Michael that my mother is reading for the very first time. Very painful story. And Michael confessed things to me that he would never share with anyone. So he was able to release these loads. You know, as I told you at the beginning of this interview, I walked for the first seven years of my life with no shoes to go to school. Yes. I have a, uh, on one on my right feet. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Finish. Yeah, you were going to ask the question. No, no, no. I, I, so that's okay. This is fascinating. Uh, and, and I don't want oh, you to give away a lot in the book because I really think I can't wait to read it as well, uh, Dr. Conrad. I just wanted to get the interview as quickly as possible. I have this opportunity to chat with you. Looking at what you said about Michael Jackson, how he didn't take care of himself, did he just not trust people? Is that why he didn't take care of his feet and didn't take care of himself, you know, certain things like calluses and things like that? Or was he, just, was he obsessed that he just thought, i no. got to keep going based on the family life and stuff? He couldn't trust people, and, you know, everybody pointed fingers at him, and they always made comments at him. And you have to say that. Let's take his managers, for example. If you have a superstar as your client, he makes you a multimillionaire. He has more than you nonetheless. Wouldn't you want to take some interest in him? Wouldn't you want to make sure that he's he's right? You know, Michael Jackson made a lot of money in his life, and he has had an amazing achievement. But he has not had an amazing personal life. No. I looked at Michael, you know, when I looked at his wardrobes, and he had all kinds of costumes and outfits that he can wear. And at the book, we'll talk about one of the things about how humble he was. The one shoe, I never saw him with anything but that one black loafer that was cuffed and twisted, and there were no holes on the soles, but they probably could have been. And he just kept wearing the same shoes. I know he could afford more, but um, simple. The simple. He could he could afford whatever he wanted, but yet he was he was he was he was a creature of habit in many ways. And uh, as you said, from different people controlling him in his whole life, and he wanted to be in control of his life. That was the major part of who he was that he had to suffer through was. He never felt he he always felt he wanted to be in control because of so many people controlling him, from his dad all the way up to his managers, right? Well, there were no there were no um, there were no relationship with he and just about all the members of his family. There was a weak relationship between he and his mother, as described in the book. We talk about that. He, we talk about his disappointment. We also realize in the book why he uh, chooses other people as a mother figure compared to his actual biological mother. There's, there's a lot of things. The problem with Michael is that he, when he offloaded so much on me, it, 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 he made me extremely sad. 
But I carried his load, much like you say, you know, he's not heavy, he's my brother. I carried his load like that. Many a winding road. He is not a bad man. I don't, he never was. He made a mistake by lying to me, not telling me about his drug addiction with Dr. Arnold Klein. But I may have incited that him to to make that lie because he knew that I had a pet peeve. I'm not against anyone, but I'm really against people that try, don't try to break habits of drug addiction. I don't think people should harm themselves. The body is a host. The better you feel, the healthier you are, the better the quality of life. When people become addicted to things and they go down the road, the wrong road, they harm themselves. And the book will talk to you and tell you about a lot of stories in there, some of those that's related, that affects me, and the reason why I try to stay away from that kind of type of thing. So Michael knew that I would leave. I would not have a relationship with him or hang around if I knew that about him. And he, he definitely had it totally separated and hidden under the radar. So he hid his drug addiction from you for so long, and then you finally discovered it at one point in time, right? No, no, not until after Michael passed away and the investigations um, came forth. Then I realized what a drug addict he was. Now, when we saw what he was doing, the drug that he that made him habitual um, disorder was Demerol, and he was being right. fed that for no reason from a doctor called Arnold Klein in Beverly Hills. Arnold Klein, interestingly, was a homosexual gay male, and the judge in the case was also homosexual. They were members of what is called the gay mafia from West Los Angeles. The judge refused to allow the doctor to come to trial. But he did make one little mistake. He gave us a glimmer of a little part of his medical records. And if you look at the records, you see Demerol was given to Michael. In the last 60 days of his life, 51 times at Arnold Klein's office. You'll also see that he has given him as much as 975 milligrams of Demerol per day. Now, I'm a doctor, and I'll put that into perspective for you. If you came into the, in the emergency room today and you had broken bones, I can right. give you 15 milligrams of that drug, and your pain will be gone, and you will be asleep. So 50 milligrams. 975 right. milligrams a day, that's a lot. It is. It's a, it's a tremendously a lot. Oh, gosh. It's, a, it's I mean, when you're, you're telling me this story and seeing this, and then you, you're telling me the story, and people have to definitely pick up the book for sure, but it really scary to know that let's go to the charges, and then I, I want everyone to pick up this book because I'm learning so much that I did not know about the story. So basically, after he dies, it was pretty much a witch hunt against you because you were good friends with him and you were his personal doctor versus other doctors he's dealt with and things like that that were doing giving him things that you didn't know, right? Is that pretty much what you're telling us? I, I had no idea what he was doing, certainly. But, you know, when I found Michael, Michael was um, lifeless. I am a cardiologist. I ran in, I went straight into action and tried to resuscitate him. When you read the book, not only would you see moment to moment, breath by breath, but you'll also see the unknown. 
What happened when paramedics came into that place? They spent 25 minutes. You no, know, you were outside, crossing your arms, wishing him well. I, I was doing the same. But you will see that they basically did nothing. You will see my uh. anger. You will see, you'll, hear, you'll hear my frustration. I am not one to curse, but I had to. And even in the book, as much as I tried to hold it back, sometimes I had to be expertive. Um, oh. But you are, you're going to get to the, the book is an emotional roller coaster. I give yeah. you a little glimpse of my life and the things that I've been through, and you will. They don't. People speculate. They do not know Dr. Murray. They speculate. People speculate about Michael Jackson. They do not know Michael Jackson. But if you really don't want to be ignorant and be held in a corner where people enslave you with headlines that are not accurate. I stand behind every word in that book. You will be able to be there with us. You'll be able to sit with us, eat with us, drink with us, cry with us. See Michael jumping in the back of my car and climbing over the seat so we could take a, 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 a risky drive down the Las Vegas trip and have some male entertainment and not be recognized. You will be there with us from moment to moment. If you want to meet me oh my God. and you want to meet Michael Jackson, yes, I encourage you to read the book. My gosh, uh, uh, Dr. Murray, uh, the, just the story alone, and, and, you're, and, and you're already capturing my interest to know about all these things and being charged. That Your, your heart must have dropped when you, once you were charged, right? Just absolutely oh shocked. God. It was, it, well, yeah, first of all, that was the case. You know, if I drove down the street and I ran over somebody and I knew that and I left the scene, I'm wrong. If I ran down the street and I ran over somebody, but that person needed help and I helped them, that's a different story. In Michael's case, I was not even present when things happen. In Michael's case, the prosecutor stated that I had abandoned Michael Jackson on a propofol infusion that I started at 9 o'clock in the morning till 12 o'clock in the day. Michael Jackson was never started on any propofol infusion. Prosecutor stated by the medical expert that in order for one to stop breathing from propofol, you have to have a minimum brain level of 1.35 micrograms per ml, which is as a concentration of the drug in Michael's brain. Up till today, the coroner's office have not been able to provide a propofol brain level because they couldn't find it. It was not there because there was no drip. They took time and went into the vitreous chamber, which is at the back of the eye, and the withdrawal, they extracted just a tiny drop of fluid and found out that that area holds medications very well. They found a concentration of propofol in the back of the eye of 0.04 micrograms per ml, which was 65 times or 65-fold less than any minimum amount of propofol that can get to the brain to cause him to stop breathing. Michael Jackson was not on a propofol infusion. They, it, everything in the trial was convoluted. It was twisted. Oh. 
They brought oh. they brought equipment that was not evidence. I sat there, and the biggest thing to me that really hurt me so much in the trial, if you saw me, I was only I almost appeared to be stoic in the trial because I wasn't even sure that what was going on. It was a surreal moment. It was out of body all the time. And when I saw David Walgren, the prosecutor, tear open the, all the evidence and alter it in the, in, the, in the middle of the court while the jury was sitting in the box, they interrupted the court, they moved the juror into the juror's room. I went to the courtroom next door to cry, to bawl. And then I came back into the, into the room and we were recomposed, only for the prosecutor to go into to make a statement saying that the stipulation was correct, that he had altered the evidence. That should have been a mistrial. They were doing a lot of things against me. They harmed me. Yeah. I had, I had, there's so much things in the book. And, you know, there's also a lot of books, things I've left off. You know, I took care of the high and mighty, but I actually took a plane every, every month, twice a month, 737, <clears throat> 747. And I flew to an underprivileged area in Houston, Texas. That my dad, as a physician, served there once. These people were a lot of minorities, but they were in America's fourth largest city, and they were overlooked. No one cared for them. Fifty thousand right. people, fourteen square miles. I went there. I opened a practice. I, I lived in a fabulous office. I was paying like seven thousand dollars a month for their office, but I wanted them to feel good about themselves. I wanted them to come in and say, wow, what a great place. And what a, a standard job this doctor was doing. I did that for them. Wow. I did not make money from it. I supported it. I, 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 I've made a lot of money in my lifetime, but I've given it away. Right. But despite that, I was moved from my 2,000 square foot master suite alone. That's my bedroom to go into a seven-feet-by-five-feet cell. I know. Two years wow. Gosh. On a, a metal slab, a two-inch foam mattress, no pillows, it's it, aluminum commode, an aluminum sink, an aluminum square spot where I can sit and maybe eat something, read my book, and a round aluminum stool and planted into the earth with a metal pole. So you pretty much went from walking to school with no shoes to back in that same position when you went to jail. Yeah. Wow. Now, people got to pick up the book, check all those things out. What's new with you now, especially when they, 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 they uh, took your license, correct? What are you currently doing for our listeners out there? I am, um, you know, this, I have been supported by parents and very good friends. Um, it's been it's been tough. It's been an ordeal. <clears throat> I am, um, I am in, licensed to practice internationally. I do have my practice my licenses in Nevada, California, Texas, uh, suspended in Texas. They revoked it. Um, but at this time, I could apply for reinstatement of my medical licenses. What I do in the meantime, though, I have a I serve I serve the entire globe 
I am called now from patients all from everywhere. I have patients from Israel, from India, from the United States, interstate, different people. They have a lot of major medical issues. They are not happy with their care. They're not happy right. with their assessment. Right. I get the, the records. I review it, and I get in touch with the people. Some of them need major operations, major surgery. Like yesterday, for example, I had about 12 interviews, but even between that time, I went to a patient that came from an international source to the University of Miami. I saw the cardiothoracic surgeon with the doctor. I saw the cardiologist with the doctor. I read the echo findings with the doctor. We recommended bypass surgery. They've charged a patient $160,000 for the surgery. I would not let that happen. So I go to the to the marketing department. I introduce myself as Dr. Murray. I am the station advocate, and I like to talk about this man who has no insurance. How we can bundle his course to make it uh, affordable? I've been able to reduce that example from one hundred sixty thousand to thirty-one thousand dollars total. Right. For eight right. days in the hospital, all doctors paid, all testing, surgery in and out. After they leave the hospital. I still follow them wherever they are. And I also fly to different states. People have brought me out to their states to look at their records. And I've done that. I don't charge for it. It's just it's just my humanity. Now, Doctor Doctor Murray, when I'm you're 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 trans you're learning from this experience to serve others more and more, even though you were still doing it practicing as a doctor, you see your passion as a physician to help others and help a lot of others that are in true need. That's what it sounds like to me. Yes. There is no greater gift than giving. There is no greater gift than making yourself available to help when one is in need of that. Wow. You don't need to work from, for money. Money is a very useful tool in life. But work for fulfillment, that's what counts. Now, I'll tell you something, too, that you must keep in mind. And for your listeners out there, many of you are complaining today about how your breakfast tasted this morning or your toast was probably overdone. And you think that these are problems and you're complaining about how your boss may have said something to you yesterday. That's the real problem that prevents you from moving forward in life. Don't let that happen. You're speaking to a man this morning who has actually stood up and faced the entire world alone. Would you like right. to have worn my shoe? Mm-hmm. Do you know what no. trouble is? And the real problem is all relative. Despite that, I assure you, my goal in life is that I fell, unjustly so, but I get up, I stand. I dust myself off and I come back. And I will come back greater than before. I determine my destiny and I want you to determine yours. Do not quit on yourself. Well, I hope you get you get vindicated, uh, Dr. Murray, for all uh all the, the the from the story you're telling us and how and hopefully that happens, but I you're definitely out there to truly serve others. People need to pick up your book. Where can they purchase your book and learn more about you, Dr. Murray? They can purchase, they can purchase the book on Amazon.com, or they can go directly to my website where they can purchase and also learn more about me. And my website is drconradmurray.com. It's D R 
conradmurray.com, no spaces, or they could also buy it on Booktopia. As um, on the next uh, week, the paperback copy will be rolled out by Baby um, Book Baby. So you can order now on the website, and they all will come to you after about seven days. But I hope that if you choose to buy the book, read it with an open mind. There are areas of excitement, and there are things that's very, very dark. You know, there are stories of Michael and I, and there are stories that that's real. Um, but it's okay. I was able to tell a story about my life. You know, I, I've i lived in my father's house for years, unbeknownst to my mother, who I couldn't tell, and I couldn't even say who I was. I couldn't even identify myself as his son. I have taken yeah. a lot of hits in life for a lot of people. Yes. and But maybe one day, God will bless me. And that's all I can ask. Well, I think that you, from this, hearing more and more about your story than you being the scapegoat for everything, hopefully everything will finally change. You'll be vindicated at one point, Dr. Murray, and also ultimately you'll be able to do what you love, which is practice as a medical doctor. So, again, the book is This Is It, The Secret Lives of Dr. Conrad Murray and Michael Jackson, The Never Told Story of the King of Pop. I really uh, appreciate you calling, man. Uh, best of luck in everything, and thanks for taking the time this morning to come on the show. All the best to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Goodbye. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to Total Celebrity Show, and we'll be back in